0: Persecution can either cause you to grow or cause you to grumble. It's nothing new. And whenever a trial hits, whenever a problem uh, comes into our life, any kind of suffering, uh, we have one of two typically responses. We're going to grow or we're going to grumble. Maybe we do a little of both along the way, but our friends Boa and Wilkerson write the following It all depends on your response. In writing to believers who were struggling in the midst of persecution, Peter reminds them of their roots. They have been born again to a living hope, and therefore both their character and conduct can be above reproach as they imitate the Holy One who called them. The fruit of that proven character will be actions rooted in submission law-abiding citizens, obedient employees, submissive wives, loving husbands, and so on. So what Boa and Wilkinson are trying to do with 1 Peter in a nutshell is explain to us we're going to live in a fallen world, a fallen context where bad things are going to happen. We're going to suffer in the midst of those things. How we respond is our choice. How we respond is our growth in life, growth and maturity. Um, But he's anchoring it. We have a living hope. We're not just grinding our teeth until it's over. We've got a living hope that's eternal in the heavens. It is a marvelous book. Uh, as we are in this big book series, if you're new or newer to Stonebridge, I've been taking one book of the Bible each week and going through it from a high level. Not simply date, time, author, place, so forth, but trying to look at what are some big takeaways from this book. Maybe we know the Bible well, maybe we're still learning it. Maybe we're brand new to the Bible. And my hope is it has been a, an overview for you to think a little bit broader than perhaps uh, you have in the past And in a few weeks, uh, five weeks, we'll cover 2nd and 3rd John as one unit, but in five subsequent messages on Big Book, we'll look at the book of Philippians, and we'll spend quite a bit of time looking at that uh, book chapter, verse by verse. Well, Bo and Wilkinson continue, Peter encourages them to conduct themselves courageously. I like that phrase. Conduct yourself courageously. For the person and program of Christ, both their character and conduct must be above reproach. I've said it many, many times, you need strength and courage when you feel weak and afraid. God did not tell Joshua be strong and courageous because he was strong and courageous. Were he strong and courageous he wouldn't have had to tell him that. When you're weak and afraid, that's when God tells you be strong and take courage. So when we read these admonitions we miss some of the obvious things. Conduct yourselves courageously when the suffering comes, when the problems come. Um, if you studied uh, First Peter, I've actually taught through the book twice. I was looking back to my notes um, once here and once in a, a former church when we lived in Washington D.C. And um, it's a marvelous study. And it's if, if you are a B.S.F. or a preceptor, uh, Bible study, um, the community Bible study, any program like that, you know this experience. You study a book. When you start out, you're like, "Oh, we're going to do that book," and then you get into it, and then it's almost over, and then it's over. Go, oh, now I need to start over again. You know. If you haven't experienced that, you haven't studied the book of the Bible. Because it's always overwhelming when you start, and a little excitement, and you get into it, and you're like, all oh, right, we're gonna get through this. And you get out of it, and you go, now I finally kind of, sort of, understand it. And reading through First Peter again and again reminded me, I think I'm kind of understanding it. Uh, because this idea of suffering and trials that come, and how we as believers not merely persevere and grind our teeth to get through it, but what God is doing in the process and how we learn. We are more hardwired to escape the suffering, to learn a lesson, to end the suffering, to get beyond the suffering. One of my close friends from the Northern Virginia area, his wife's uh, enduring, I think it's the fourth or fifth time with stage four breast cancer. And it's remarkable she's lived as long as she's had, but she just gets sicker and sicker and sicker. And we were talking about the trials of going through chemo and the new protocol she's gonna go through. and. And um, he said something that really caught me off guard. I said, well, how long will this uh, trial be? And he says, until remission or death. Another cheery Michael Easley sermon. I don't let you down. But that phrase has haunted me. And that's really our life. That's the only option we have in living through just the stuff, the dayliness, until remission or we die. The Christian needs to have courage to conduct him or herself in that in-between. And if we understand the joy of our salvation, we should not just have tenacity, but we should have joy. We should have enthusiasm. We should have hope and optimism. Not that we're going to get through it, but we're going to learn and grow and mature, and this earth is not our final place. It is generally true that the real me or the real you comes out under pressure, is it not? When, when something bad happens, uh, we see a glimpse into who you really are. We see a glimpse into who I really am. Uh, when, the, when the persecution comes, when the heat comes, when the accusations come, if we're caught, we're exposed, many of you are parenting now, or you remember when you were parenting your younger children, when they're caught, you see a lot of machinations go on. If you had more than one child, you probably had one that would deny videotape, eyewitness, fingerprint, and DNA. They never did that. You, know, you couldn't prove it to them. And the other one's got a soft conscience, and I did it, I did And they cry, and they mourn, and they repent. And I often looked at our kids going, which one am I like? When the heat's turned on, when the pressure comes, when we're caught, we're exposed, when something bad happens. Uh, Wayne mentioned Amy's uh, uh, social media post, it is pretty rich. I've known a lot of people that don't respond that way when hard things happen medically, but it exposes us to some level. Do you remember the, the Mousetrap, which was a play within the play of Hamlet? You know, only if you took, like, classic literature or had to suffer through and watch Hamlet would you know anything about this. But there's a wonderful story within a story that is written by Shakespeare, and Mousetrap is this play that Hamlet produces to basically expose what happened. It's really a very clever story. You have to get past the English. By the way, Shakespeare's meant to be watched and played, not read and studied. You can't read it. You give it up unless you're a professor. You can't read it. You watch it. You do a play, but you don't try to read it. You'll just, you'll stop. Queen Gertrude is, is Hamlet's mother, and she's watching this play, and in the middle of this play, uh, she makes that famous statement, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. We typically reverse that and say, methinks, but the way it was written, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. And she's commenting about the, the queen whose husband's died, and she's overreacting and overacting, she'll never marry again. And she does immediately. What the reader, what the participant is seeing, going, well, the queen's done the same thing does she see it? Everybody else sees it, but she doesn't see it. And so the queen watching the mousetrap expo- sees the exposition of it. She goes, well, that was deceptive. That was stupid. Nobody, of course, would believe that, that she's so lost with her husband being murdered. And in the very same way, the queen remarries immediately after her, after her husband's murder. And so the irony of someone said, methinks she does protest too loudly, methinks, uh, we're exposing our character, all that is just for that point. The audience knows something, and here's the, here's the reason I bring this up. Those around us know who we are, the way we respond to trials, the way we respond to pressure, the way we respond to stress. Our character and conduct are exposed. I want to look at 1 Peter in a little different fashion than before. I want to talk some high level about topics and I just want to look at 10 verses because there's so much in this text that I love to glance over but rather than doing that I want to give you what I think is one of the more, uh, let's say um, needs emphasis part of this book. So let's think about some topics. I don't think you can read this long letter as Wayne Grudem writes without hearing the voice of God speaking powerfully to the church today. 105 verses, Peter ranges over a wide field of Christian theology and ethics. Here is the great doctrine of redemption from the conception before the foundation of the world to the consummation of our receiving an inheritance that never fades away. Here are the repeated calls to holiness and to humble us to trust in God each day. Here is counsel, practical counsel for marriage, for work, for relating to government, for witnessing to unbelievers, for using spiritual gifts, and even serving as church officers, officials, we'd say elders. Here also is profound comfort in sorrow, as far as God allows it into the deep mysteries of suffering and reprobation. Here is the majestic beauty of the church, and here is Jesus, the chief shepherd who cares for us, the chosen one, the cornerstone who establishes and unites us, and the Savior who bore our sins in His body on the cross. The short letter has two primary hinges on suffering and on glory. Suffering and a cogent, a cognate suffer is used about 15 times depending on your English Bible, and glory is used 10 times. If you know about Jesus' record in John, He says the only way He can get to glory is through suffering. It's a very unappealing process. I must suffer to get to glory. Peter is saying the same kinds of things. No other New Testament book covers the prophet and priest role as much as 1 Peter does, save except Hebrews and a little bit of Revelation. So this very short, compact book, this is the this is Peter the denier. This is the always having something to say Peter, open mouth, insert feet. This is the Peter who runs into the tomb. This is the impetuous Peter who becomes the leader of the church, a completely transformed person who's writing this pastoral letter. His theology is rich, it's remarkable, it's practical. And the way our Bible's organized, I don't want to overstate the case, but James and Peter are like brothers in many, many ways. And what James is saying in a practical exposition is not unlike what Peter's saying in a practical exposition. And a lot of it has to do with injunctive or imperative kinds of commands. I want to look at this scope of the great salvation in just 10 verses. And I will give you a little outline. This isn't the only way to outline it. Whenever you see an outline, it's just a way to put some handles on something and organize it. Some are easier than others. This is fairly straightforward, but there are better attempts. But I want you to see the hope, the joy, and the proof of your salvation. The hope of your salvation in the verses 3 to 5, the joy of your salvation in verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and the proof or the witnesses of our salvation in verses 10-12. through 12. So that's where we're going, just to look at these 10 verses for a few minutes. And let me read chapter 1, verses 3-12. through 12. You can follow on screen, online if you're watching, or you can follow in your own Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. There's a pause there. Do you live with an inexpressible joy? Not happiness, not things that we get or acquire that make us happy, but do you live with an inexpressible joy in your salvation? So hold that thought as we continue. Verse 9, obtaining is the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings, there it is, of Christ and the glories to follow. Those two terms hinge together it was revealed to him that they were not serving themselves, he's talking about the prophets, it, they were not serving themselves, but you, the future reader, the future hearer, in these things which are now, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from Heaven, things into which the angels long to look. A lot of text covers a, a remarkable scope of the power, the glory, the amazing content of our salvation, this great salvation. So let's think about some of these a little bit and unfold some of these verses. First of all, notice again, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Um, this reminds us a lot of a lot of things. It reminds us it's not our work, it's His merit. It's not our merit, it's His work. And I, I still think sewn very tightly into most people's brains is this if-then view of life and theology. If I do this, then this will occur. And uh, we've, heard, we've all heard artists, we've heard uh, people that have a lot of attention in the media whether they're a movie star or a musician, and they, they'll say things like, I, I searched world religions and I decided this was the one that was right. And that always makes me sort of gag. Like number one, you haven't searched all world religions. Uh, I went to seminary and post-grad and grad school and doctoral, and I I didn't probably study 10 religions. You could spend 18 lifetimes and you couldn't study all world religions. That's just a silly statement. What they mean is, I checked out a few things and I said, this is the one I want to believe. That's a human determination. That's fine, but let's just be straight about it. I looked at three and I picked that one. And then they align their life to it, and unfortunately, tragically, it never lasts, or rarely does it last. When I was in high school, there was one artist whom I will not name, and he came to Christ in a very powerful way and started producing great Christian music, and um, I mean, really great Christian music, and we all were buying it, and he was being interviewed, and the next thing you know, he jettisoned it all and got into Kabbalah. So what do you do with that? Um, part of the challenge is they don't understand that salvation was not their determination. And Peter says it very well, according to His great mercy He has caused us to be born again to a living home. There, There is a work of salvation. You may not like it, you may not understand it, you may not be able to make sense of it. Uh, all of humanity is going to hell on a train and there's no handbrake and there's no conductor. And unless God calls you, you're going to hell. The doctrines of election and predestination are so maligned and so misunderstood, and it's tragic because it's never important to say, uh, are you elected? Are you predestined? I don't know if that person's chosen of God. Never does the Scripture enjoin us to say those things. Election and predestination and God calling and choosing you means to put the benefit and the glory on God, not you discovering God. Many of us were drug kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. I've often used the illustration with the arch, it was either Alan Redpath or Vernon McGee who talked about you know, all, all of humanity's going to hell and as you go along life there's an arch on the side of the road one day and it says, whosoever will. And people walk to that arch and they trust Christ they pray their prayer, they walk the aisle, whatever, they, they trust Christ. And sometime after they've walked through that arch, they look back on that arch. And on the back side it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. And I've never been able to find the exposition of either Red Path or Vernon McGee on that arch or how they explain it. But I think it's brilliant, and the way I like to say it is the doctrine of election and predestination has no application for the unbelieving world. Hear me carefully. The doctrines of election and predestination have no application for the unbelieving world. The doctrines only have value to the saved because we're saved when we go, what did I do to get saved? Nothing. I responded by faith because he called me. I made a decision. I walked out, I prayed the prayer because he called me out of that all the humanity going to hell in a handbasket. It wasn't because you or I were better than somebody else. That's heresy. That's heresy. It's because he loved. The conundrum we face is whosoever will sounds like a universal offer and won't go too far down this road because that's for another time. I believe Jesus says, whosoever will. I be lifted up, probably refer- referencing his crucifixion. If I be lifted up, I'll draw people to me. But they've got to make a decision. You're never going to figure this out. You're never going to reconcile it in our finite minds. We're a thimble of information against the oceans of God's sovereignty. You're never going to be able to comprehend it. Scripture teaches that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Scripture does not teach, go find the elect. Scriptures does not teach, don't evangelize because they're all going to get saved if they're truly elect. Doesn't matter about the rest of them. Scripture never says use election or predestination as a club. The doctrines of election and predestination mean God loved you and called you and you responded by faith. I'll never be able to reconcile that. I don't care how much you study it. You can't reconcile it. You and I have to respond, but he chose uh, let Augustine to say he was drug kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty apt description. He didn't really have a choice. I think he got it. Peter is saying, according to God's mercy, He caused you to be saved. And this is why I wanted to park here for a while. Being born again means you're never going to die again. Being born again means you're going to live forever. Being born again means someone else paid your debt in your place on your behalf instead of you, and you don't have to worry about that anymore. Being born again means you're free from the guilt and shame of all the things you did before you knew Christ. And apart from the resurrection, we're hopeless. It's not a matter of an intellectual pursuit of Jesus Christ or an intellectual pursuit of what's the right religion in the world, and I'm going to belong to that group like you're choosing a political party or a club or an association. It's the fact that you respond to the call of Christ. There are people right now in this room that don't know Christ. There are people watching live stream or will watch that or who don't know Christ. And what you need to know is that He died in your place on your behalf instead of you. He took your sin, He took my sin. He willingly obeyed His Father. That's what Peter's talking about. The glory will come to the suffering. He suffered in a way we can't measure or understand no, there's no human measurement. The crucifixion, the excruciation of the crucifixion is a physical depiction of what we would say was the worst torment that could happen physically to a human being, but the spiritual challenges I would argue were far greater than what He endured on that cross. Separated from His Father, His Father pours wrath upon Him because He loves you and me. He obeys His Father because He loves you and me. He obeys His Father because He loves His Father. He only does what His Father tells Him to do. He's the perfect Son in every measure. And He says, I will take their sin and let you pour the wrath upon Me in their place, on their behalf, instead of them, so they can have a free gift called eternal life. I'll pay for it, Father. Put it on my tab. I take care of it for them. We do not understand how great this salvation is. It has become our get-out-of-jail-free card when we sin. It has become that, oh, by the way, when I die, I know I'm going to heaven thing. It's that once saved, always saved, cliche we say that's true, but we treat it casually. You and I deserve hell. You and I deserve the wrath of God, but He loved you. And He died in your place on your behalf. you. If you don't know Christ, I'd sit here all week and try to convince you. I can't. But there is someone who does, and his name is the Holy Spirit. And he's better than a guilty conscience. He's better than a Billy Graham. He's better than a preacher or an evangelist or a revival. Because the Holy Spirit takes the living Word of God and he somehow impresses it upon human hearts and minds and we know we're sinful, we know we're desperate, we know we're wicked, we know we're bad. Forget this self-esteem junk that the culture's trying to sell you. Let me encourage you, you're wicked. You're a stinking sinner, and so am I, and I'm headed to hell unless somebody else helps me. He died in your place on your behalf instead of you because He loves you. And by putting your trust, by putting your faith, by putting your belief in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, He forgives you of your sin and grants you eternal life. It's the most incredible transaction ever on the human planet. It's the most incredible transaction the world will ever hear. You didn't do anything to merit or warrant or study or figure it out. He called you by His grace. He called you by His design. He called you by His love. I hope you never stop being marveled by it. Further, Peter says, we have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven. This is mind-boggling and otherworldly when I read this passage. It blows my mind, and it's only understandable in the other world. It's, it's something we can't even begin to understand. I find it fascinating uh, when he talks about gold here. Um, when, when my... Um, when I got married, uh, I have two rings that are, that are uh, welded together. One's a little larger band, one's a little smaller band. The, uh, the, the smaller one actually was my father's, and... Um, when he passed away, I asked mom if I could have it. Excuse me, let me back up. The, 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 the larger one was my maternal grandmother's. And when C and I were dating and engaged, you know, you're going to buy a ring. And I said, Would you mind if, if we used my maternal grandmother's ring if mom would give it to me? No. And immediately mom says, Of course you can have it. And she was, it was apparently a ring she got later in life. I think maybe her hands grew or whatever, arthritis, because it's quite large. I have large hands. But, um, when I took it to the jeweler, he said, "I can't, I can't enlarge this. It'll break. It's so old." And so, fortunately, it was able to. It's snug, but it gets on there. When my father passed, I said, "Hey, mom, what are you going to do with Dad's ring? You want it? Yeah." I didn't have to beg. I got it. So I took him and had I took him to a jeweler and I had him put them together. He said the same thing. That ring is so old. See, I thought gold was eternal. This passage tells us it's not. It's perishable and it'll fade away friend of mine cleaned pools in seminary and he wore his gold wedding ring and for four years he cleaned pools. And one day he pulled his hand out and his ring crumbled in about ten pieces. And he took it to a jeweler and he said, the chlorine has leached out other metals of that ring and you can't melt it and remake it. It is gone. You have to get a new one. Peter says that even gold is perishable. He's saying that which the world looks at as being the most enduring thing doesn't have a chance. Your salvation is imperishable. It is undefiled. It will not fade away. It's reserved in Heaven. It's pretty interesting to dwell on that. We have, a lot of us have this acquisition of wealth idea, and I'm all for, I'm all for being good stewards. Uh, Cindy and I I often say, and I know I'm in Dave Ramsey's country, be careful here, but I said we were Dave Ramsey before Dave was cool. Meaning we, we grew up in Ron Blue's era and uh, we had the envelope system. We had you know, spend less than you earn, avoid debt, uh, give and save a little bit and do it for a lifetime. And we were scared enough and whatever enough and that's what we did. We, we, we were a generation that was afraid of debt. I remember taking three small loans in our entire married life, one for uh, five, 500 bucks, for a seminary, because I didn't have quite enough for my $1,500 tuition, that's how long ago this was, and I had to take a little $500 90-day note. I was like sleepless for four months, you know? I mean, I'm mowing yards and trimming hedges and looking for work in the neighborhood. I, anywhere I can make 20, 30, 40 bucks while I'm going to seminary, Cindy's working, just to, and we, we were like sweating and to get that $500 repaid. We never made any money early in life. We made like $22,000 a year at the first church I served, God bless them. And um, we, we, uh, we had to buy a van, we had kids, and we took a four-year loan and paid it off in two. We sweated the whole time. We, were, we didn't like it. It wasn't because we were smart. We just were afraid. And then we learned the thing: Spend less than you earn. Give first. Save a little. Do it for a long time, you'll be okay. And we're to the point now in God's great, great kindness, we've not always made the best decision with every dollar we've held, but we've tried to be faithful. And in the long term of that stewardship, when you meet with a financial planner, which by the way, every one of you needs to have a good financial planner. You need a couple that will sit down with you, a firm, a group, that will not just talk about taking your money, but help you think about what you're going to do. And you sit with them. The the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life, besides when Cindy said, yes, you would marry me, the most amazing thing I heard in my life was the financial planner told me, you could stop and you all will be fine. I was floored. You mean I could actually quit? He goes, yeah. I'm not recommending you do that, but you could actually stop. Your wife's fine. Your kids are fine. we got the college funds for the grandkids. We don't have any debts of any kind. How many of you would love to hear that? Don't raise your hand. Would love to hear that right now. You can stop right now and be fine. You know how you get there? You live on your income. You avoid debt. You give first. You do it for a long time. That's how you get there. When I read this passage, let me just erase everything I said as meaningless. Because this passage says, you have an inheritance that is eternal, imperishable, will not fade away, undeviled in heaven. It's got your name on it. Your salvation is so incredible, He, by His mercy, drew you to Himself, and He secured everything you will need for all eternity, not just to get your kids through college, not just to get out of debt, not just to take that one dream vacation you want to take, not just to buy your second or third home, not ever fill in the blank. And this is the problem with horizontal living. Verses 6-9 to nine speak of the joy of our salvation. So, so first of all, we're, we're seeing in this passage the hope. The hope you have is it's otherworldly and mind-boggling what your inheritance is going to be. The second part of this is the joy of your salvation in verses 6-9. to nine. We need to remind ourselves that life is not always terrible, and we need to also choose joy. Joy is different than happiness. I've shared many times before, my nature is not a joyful person. I, I'm somewhat of an Eeyore. I'm kind of a half-empty guy. Uh, I learned from my brother years ago, it's better to be pessimistic because if something good happens, then you have a real good reason to be excited. Right? Some of you understand that. You know. Uh, tiggers drive me crazy. You know? Tiggers just wear me out. I'd rather be Eeyore. And so we're just, we're, you know, we look at things differently. Um, I have to choose joy. And something I've learned too late in life is you have to remind yourself of this, or you won't be joyful. You don't learn this lesson one time, and all of a sudden, it works both ways. If you're one of these overly joyful, bouncing around, crazy people, uh, it takes some tempering to calm you down, right? On the other side of it, if you're sort of a dour, half-empty kind of, you know, analytical, calculated person, you've got to remember to look for joy. And I'm not talking about activities and how we live life. I'm talking about what the Scripture tells you me about joy. You know, what stirs me, and I've told you before, I don't, I don't smile, I cry when I have joy. My sins are forgiven. That blows me away every time I dwell on that. The psalmist says, he forgives our sins for his name's sake. Isaiah says the same. He forgives your sins for his name's sake, not for you or me, for his name's sake. And if you have rebellious, difficult children, it's easy to forgive children that are compliant and in the right direction. When they're rebellious and they're wrecking your home and wrecking your world and wrecking other people's lives, it's hard to be forgiving. You Sure, you say it, but do you feel it? Wow, that He forgives my sins. All I've ever done, all I continue to do, and all that I will do. If that doesn't stir you, I can't help I would say about the joy of our salvation is you can't overstate it and you can't overstudy it. You and I should be the most joyful people on the planet. You've heard me say that at least once before. Because we don't have the fears the world has. Sure, we have trials and suffering and that's what the book of 1 Peter is about, but We've won the war, and we haven't. He has. The victory's completed. The inheritance is secure. Your dream, any of you ever built a home? Have you ever like, built a custom home or got a spec home and worked on it? And, and you do that, and it's just a fun thing. and I'm married to a realtor, so we do that. And so sometimes she says, it's time to move, so we move. I, I guess they get to live where Cindy decides, so it, it's good. Uh, every house we lived in, there's things we would change Every house you build, every house you buy, every architect that designs those houses goes and goes, you know, I should have done this instead of that one. So I have a friend who's an architect, and he said, it takes about six homes before you figure out what's going to be better. And in our neighborhood, it's funny, because one of our neighbors had one of the early additions of our f- floor plan, and his hallways are like this wide. And he goes, yeah, they learned. And he goes, I like your hallways, they're wide enough to take a sofa up the stairs, you know? So you're learning things along the way, and you're, you still go, Ah, it's not exactly what I want. It's not quite right. When it comes to the joy of your salvation, you can't overstate it or overstudy it. You've got to go back to it again and again. you got to remind yourself of what it was. you got to remind yourself of why, and not get lost in the what's wrong with it. Um... It's amazing how a handful of hard, negative, uncomfortable things can destroy your joy, and Christy illustrated it perfectly when she was talking to the kids. All those losses accumulate. And 1 Peter is saying the joy of your salvation in the midst of your trials needs to be higher than your frustration with life. Um, My two cents on COVID uh, We continue to talk about this, we continue to worry about it. We were with some people last week and I was exhausted talking about it. I'm just I'm just so tired of everybody having an opinion. Science says this, follow the science, do this. The science says two, three masks. God bless them all. God bless them all. I know it's taken lives. I know it's not to be trifled with if you have certain pre-existing situations. I am not minimizing that. Yes, 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 you have to be smart. But my God, people, are you going to live under the fear of a virus the rest of your life? I'm not saying you live half, half at least? I'm not saying you're stupid. But this says we have the joy of salvation that can't be taken away, that's eternal, it's imperishable, it will not fade away, and you ought to be happy about it. If you're not, something wrong with you. Something wrong with me. Because we're so horizontally minded, we don't think God really enters into our equation. If I do these things as a steward, if I do these things as a resume, then things will probably work out right. I'm here to tell you, it probably won't. It might. If it does, great. Good for you. Bless God if it works out. But this life is a vapor we saw last week. You know, it's funny when the monastic period is a is a fascinating study if you're inclined in history, but people that were beat up by sin and guilty said, let's get away from the world. And in fact, they were the first ones to unplug. Let's go to the mountains. Let's go somewhere away and we'll live a holy life. And we'll have you know, prayer in the morning and we'll sing and we'll grow vegetables and brew beer and raise German shepherds, That's what they all did. And, and, we'll, and we'll be away from the temptations of life and we'll be better pious Christians. You know how successful the monastic period was? A total disaster! And it fell apart. Sure, there's a part of me that'd like to be a monk, to be away from all the the stuff of life. I mean, that's part of who I am. Some of you go, no way! I want to be where the party is. Go right ahead. My simple wandering point here is You need to choose to rejoice in your salvation regardless of your trials. You cannot overstate it, you cannot overstudy it. He has accomplished what you could never dream of. And we live like we're poor suffering people. If your salvation and mine are protected by the power of God through faith, Peter says, in these things you greatly rejoice even though you have been distressed by various trials. You need to spend some time with this, friends even though you go through fire. Cindy and I have dear friends, <clears throat> Mel and Brian Birdwell. He was burned in 9-11. He had, um, was, was hit where the plane hit, and he was completely burned, third degree. He spent uh, 12, I think, 13 weeks at the Washington Burn Unit. I went to see him on a number of occasions. I've never seen a person go through so much agony uh, with the, the, the routine they had to go through with the chlorine brass and debreeding him. He's on a complete morphine drip. He's five minutes in these chlorine tubs and these poor people that have to do this to burn victims. They're debreeding the skin and the, and the patients are just howling. They're just howling. There's nothing can turn the pain down. And then you go through that whole process. You go back, you collapse, you're exhausted. You're on a wide open pain, as much pain medicine as they does give you without killing you. And, and you do it again the next day. And again the next day. And again the next day. And the last time I talked with him, I think it north of 40 surgeries, she's had post-burns. He and his wife wrote a book called Refined by the Fire using this verse. <laughs> My sufferings don't look anything like Brian's and Mel's. But he's a Texas State Senator today. And if you met him, you'd see the, cause, the, the results of being burned that badly. But here's a guy that loves Christ. And he's got a purpose in life. His faith is more precious than gold, even pure gold, because your faith in Christ is not like this, it's imperishable. Um, It's mind boggling and otherworldly, more precious than gold, and the outcome of your faith is your salvation. What will it take for you to stop long enough beyond me talking at you for 45 minutes to sit and understand how great your salvation is? I don't don't know that I can do it. I feel inadequate to set a fire under your mind and heart. We do not understand the price of our salvation or the benefit of our salvation because we live self-willed and horizontally, and when trials come we complain about them. It's normal. Peter is saying you're going to have suffering. There'll be glory at the end of the suffering, but you're going to have suffering. And as you go through this suffering, let me start this letter out by saying the hope and the joy of your salvation is surpassing this temporary world we're in. The last section is verses 10 to 12. It's a little hard to shrink wrap it into an outline. Maybe it's the witness of our salvation, the proof of our salvation. Probably would not be uh, hurtful for me to reread verses 10 through 12 if uh, our team behind the curtain can run those slides for me. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them, he's talking about the prophets of old, that they were not surveying themselves. In other words, the prophecies they were given by Yahweh were not just about their experience, but about something in the future. And he's really giving a tell to the New Covenant here. but to you in these things which now have been announced to you, through those who preach the Gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from Heaven, things into which angels long to look. So if I can say that the joy of your salvation, the hope of your salvation, this is the witness or the proof of your salvation that you have. And let's see if I can unpack that a little bit to make sense of it. Um, The prophets understood grace. I think the prophets understood more of a theological timeline than we give them credit for. They didn't necessarily understand about the Christ and, and when he was going to come, obviously, but they knew a Savior had to come. They knew someone had to solve their problem and their dilemma. Uh, even David, when he writes as the king, understood someone had to come solve the sin condition that we're in. But they're studying the Scripture, they've been given this information, and they're, they're like a good prophet, or a good priest, or a good preacher, or a good Bible student. They're studying the Scriptures, and they're trying to see. This isn't some Nostradamus nonsense. What did it mean? That's, that's a lie from hell. What they're, what they're studying is, what does the Word of God tell us? What is the Spirit doing in this new covenant? Because the new covenant is poured out on all mankind, and the Spirit of God will teach We don't need, quote, the rabbinic system in and of itself. The Holy Spirit will help us understand and accomplish these things, along with teachers still. Jesus was hated, He was betrayed, He was forsaken, He was scourged, He was crucified, He he endured inhumane treatment for the glory set before Him. He was also transfigured, resurrected, ascended, and now lives eternally at the Father's right hand, and will come in a future to reign in glory. Wayne Grudem writes, though the world may think such Christians insignificant and worthy of pity or scorn. Let me read that again. It's a little bit cumbersome. Though the world may think such Christians insignificant and worthy of pity or scorn. Certainly, uh, we're derided more now than in my lifetime. Uh, the church around the world is persecuted, has always been persecution, but now it's, there, there's no consequence anymore of persecuting church in many countries. The world may think of us as insignificant or worthy of pity or scorn, but the angels who see the ultimate reality from God's perspective, so the angels are removed from the commonplace and they see what God the Father is doing from the angels' perspective, he writes, uh, find them objects of intense interest It's one of those phrases angels long to look, it always gets people, what is going on there? What is going on there? This is a great explanation, hang with me. For they know that these struggling believers are actually the recipients of God's greatest blessings and honored participants in the great drama at the focal point of universal history we too may rightly think of our Christian lives as no less privileged and no less interesting to holy angels than those of Peter's readers. Said it real simply, the angels are more more blown away about our salvation than we are. The angels are more blown away about salvation than the world looks at crazy Christians and persecutes the church. These super beings that exist to do God's bidding they're messengers only do what He tells them and what He tells them to do and what they sustain will never know until Heaven. It's a great study by the way, but we just don't know a lot about them. But Peter's oh by the way comment, oh by the way the angels look at your salvation and they're, paraphrase, they're blown away. They can't believe what they get to see how you, a sinful person, can be saved by the grace that they understood and have an eternal relationship and inheritance with Him. Prophets of old looked at God's angels and this phrase long to look at their salvation had to scratch their heads. Now, post-New Covenant, we understand. The bottom line is you and I are throwaway people. We are discarded human. We're we're homeless, we're mentally ill, we're sick, we're sinful, we're depraved, we're arrogant, we're abusive, we're abused, we're victims, we're poor, we're well-born, we're legitimate, we come from all sorts of brands of life. But Christ died for you. He loves you. He forgives you. He calls you His child. He gives you a backstage pass and a front row seat at this most eternal, imperishable, never-fading kingdom. So when you suffer, when I suffer, when things don't go our way, when we're victims, when persecution happens, when, unfortunate, when loss happens, go back to the joy of your salvation. Go back to the hope of what this salvation relationship is and know from eternity past, let me just say it that way, God's program was, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you witnesses along the way to show you this is how much I love you. This life at best is a clean bus station. And I've never been in a bus station I wanted to be in very long. Even a brand new one. And a brand new bus station is still filled with the riffraff of humanity, me being one of them, seating it, sitting in an uncomfortable chair, waiting to get on the worst form of transportation on the planet. <laughs> to stop 87 times to get from point A to point B. That's life. But when you finally get off that last exit, that celestial kingdom will blow your mind. Do you have joy in your salvation? Do you have hope in your salvation? And the witnesses have confirmed it. The Scripture is telling us, He died for you, He loves you, He forgives you, He calls you His own. We talk a lot these days about a father wound. I've been in conversations in the last two, three weeks with men about this father wound thing. It's valid, it's real. Probably most men go through it at some level. But I find it striking that we don't see the humor We're hurt by our earthly father. Our heavenly father has done everything for us. And yet we're going to focus on the injury, right? May God give you the joy of his salvation. May he encourage you to have hope in the future. Not to live in fear, but in faith.